I want to just begin with a quote from Timothy Keller. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1 verses, uh, we're going to look at verses 8 uh, through 17 today. And this really is the heartbeat of what this letter is about. The theme is wrapped up uh, in, this, in this portion of Paul's beautiful letter to the church in Rome. In Rome. And so uh, this, this quote from Keller, I think, is a really great synopsis of what is the heartbeat of what Paul is trying to say, which he's trying to communicate the gospel and its implications. And Keller says that the gospel is not merely a concept or a philosophy. In the gospel, words and power come together. And that the message of the gospel is what God has done and will do for us. In other words, it's good news, not good advice. That it's not an ideology, it's not a ladder to climb, it's not proving your worth to God. It's God declaring his intention to bring salvation directly to us in our brokenness through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension and sending of the Spirit that all happened through the life of, of Jesus Christ, who we are told God has spoken to us at various times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in and through his son, that Jesus is the final word to the world, and it's his world, and he is in the business of seeking and saving that which is lost. Paul writes to Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy, a really powerful passage. It's going to really tie in a theme that's very important to Paul. Uh, and, and, and Timothy is this young pastor, and he's pastoring a church, and he's experiencing a lot of the turmoil of what it means to lead a church. And, and, and it's intimidating, and, and the, the pressure and the expectation that, that I think pastors can feel uh, from the people, and this, this overwhelming sense that somehow uh, its success is dependent upon you. Now, I believe that it's God's church, and, and it's his work, I don't know how this all works, but I do know that we can make a mess of things. But all I will say is that T Paul writes to Timothy something that Timothy must have been struggling with, which was insecurity, intimidation, maybe even shame. And Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Once again, he says, don't be ashamed, just like he says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Here he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the, of the gospel, because the gospel is the source of our power. It's the means by which we actually make a difference in the world in which we live. But what are the reasons why we become so overwhelmed? or even afraid? Why are we ashamed of the gospel if the gospel indeed is the only thing that actually makes existence make sense? Why is it so difficult for us? I had the privilege of spending yesterday afternoon, well it started on Friday, I was a part of a, a, um, a gathering of leaders around the topic of evangelism and they brought in uh, Michael Ramsden who is the new president of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Uh, Michael is, a, is, a, is this brilliant, erudite Englishman uh, who 
uh, was one of the founders of the Oxford Fellowship for Apologetics and Evangelism. And, uh, and I, I had the privilege of interviewing him in this conference and we just hit it off. And then yesterday we spent like three hours together um, over a lovely lunch at Luce um, and he treated me and it was so fun uh, because I think he, like me, is a true Christian hedonist. And he, uh, we were talking about some, what are the dilemmas? What is the greatest issues facing the church today uh, in its ineffectiveness uh, in evangelization? Why is that such a problem? Why are churches abandoning the, the call to, to fulfill the Great Commission? If the church exists for the good of those outside of the church, how do we think we're fulfilling that if we're only moving toward social justice and not actually moving toward proclamation? Why are we turning inward upon ourselves and making church a, a, a new kind of supernatural, spiritual self-help session? Why is that becoming an increasingly popular thing while the actual thing that the church is actually commanded to do by Jesus, the thing that we're not doing? And Michael had some really powerful insights that he gave, and I just want to share a couple of them with you. I think it's really helpful. Number one, he said that we live in a global culture of bitterness right now. And he said that global culture of bitterness is driven by a desire for justice. So it's like a rage that our next generations are feeling. There's so much polarization, and it's not just an issue with the UK and America, by the way. It literally is spreading. We are a global people. We are connected um, more so than we've ever been as far as, as far as cultures intermingling through things like the internet. But there is a deep dissatisfaction, and, it, and it's, it's an increasing desire for justice in an unjust world, but the desire leads to bitterness. And this is a, the very thing that um, Hosea actually proclaimed is that, is that, listen, you will desire justice and the justice that you will get will actually be a bitter pill, essentially. It's gonna bring about bitterness. And he said that what the, the essential issue is, is that we live in a culture of victimization. And what he means by that is that we actually are not okay with listening to or respecting anyone that doesn't fully accept or respect the, the position of victim. And he used this great example. He said, has anyone seen the original Superman? He said, in the original Superman, Christopher Reeves, his only weakness was kryptonite. He was morally perfect. He was handsome. He was physically like impenetrable. You know, the guy was, he was like, he's supposed to be the ideal, the ideal Superman. I mean, really, this is, the, this is the goal. But have you seen, and then he goes, have you seen the newer version, uh, Superman, Man of Steel? And yet we don't have to talk about how horrible that movie is because it really is horrible. But you remember in the opening scene, what, where do we find Superman? Superman is in this, he, he's, he's this handsome, rugged, bearded man on a boat out in sea and he's having an existential crisis. He is a victim of misunderstanding. And, and he, can't, he, he, he can't seem to actually engage in what he's called to do or what he knows he's meant to do because, because nobody understands him. And he said one of the issues with this is that, that that sort of victim mentality has created for us a culture that does not know how to distinguish be, the difference between love and affirmation. And so what we have now is that people say, you have to accept me as I am and do not try to change me 
Because in doing so, you're being arrogant. You're elevating yourself above me. You're violating what it means to be a broken person in, in this world. And so part of our, our sort of mentality is this idea of how do I mean, part of our identity is wrapped up in this, this we want to change, but we don't want anyone else to tell us how to do it. And it's a deep issue. And this is why churches across the board think that the way to actually reach the world is by surrendering surrendering certain aspects of the gospel, the ethics of the kingdom of Jesus. Let's get, if we can get rid of the sexual ethics, then people will accept the gospel more. We don't want to offend people because it's off-putting. It's off-putting. Listen, the gospel is off-putting. And the gospel's effectiveness is actually recognizing that unless you die with Jesus, there is no life. But we're not okay with that. And so we keep soft-pedaling the, the things that, that actually fight against the culture. We let go of them in hopes of reaching the culture. But all we do is find ourselves in, in the same boat. We're dissatisfied. We feel like everything is unjust. We, and it brings a bitter pill rather than a justice that flows out of the gospel and the center of the gospel, which is God actually entering into the human situation and taking that brokenness and that pain into himself. And I believe that what Michael shared was very profound in regards to understanding uh, the, the dilemmas and the challenges that we face in being, in being authentic expressions. We don't have to, when I say we should begin every service with, hi, my name's Josh, I'm a sinner, that's not a, the victim mentality is not what you have going on in an AA meeting. An AA meeting says, I am an alcoholic, but my confession of my, of my tendency toward alcoholism is the means by my victory over it, how I maintain my sobriety. I'm, my identity is not I'm an alcoholic. My identity is in my victory over that in the context of community by recognizing my weakness and my need for help. It's a very different mentality than victimization, isolation, which is what we see happening in our culture right now. Why, are, why is the gospel offensive? Well, first of all, the gospel is offensive. The proclamation that the gospel of salvation is free and undeserved offends. It offends because it says that we are so spiritually impotent that the only way to gain salvation is by accepting it as a free gift. It basically offends the moral and the religious person because who think that their decency gives them the advantage over less moral people. The gospel says no, the cross puts every single person on the same playing field. It says you will be a victim and you will be a victimizer, period. And that is why we need God's gracious movement toward us in Jesus. This is why the gospel is good news only because it's down to earth. Secondly, we're told that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, why? Because it's offensive to say that your life is so evil that only the death of God could save you. Think about that. In a time in which we, we live in this constant, ever-flowing movement of self-help, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to improvement. I'm, I think we should, Darcy and I will have books on 
how to eat better, how to exercise better, how to understand certain habits. And I'm, I'm, not, down, I'm not downplaying the importance of, of psychology. One of my favorite books of all time is Daniel Kinnaman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, which helps you understand how we make decisions and why our brains are really glitchy and we shouldn't trust our decision-making. It's why it actually rendered me a useless leader because I don't trust anything I do anymore because of that book. No, I'm just joking. But I think that the point is is that when the gospel becomes a new movement by which people can achieve their greatness, we have a problem. Now we're turning it into a prosperity gospel. And I think that we, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing because the world says that you can be your best now if you just tap that potential. And that has infiltrated the church. It's not just the secular world, but that is the church and Christian publishing is churning out self-help books endlessly, far more than it's churning out books on the cross. The gospel declares that trying to be good and spiritual is never enough. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. We don't like losing our autonomy. I think that that's the thing. This is the classic statement of the modern man. What's true for you is fine as long as you don't push it on me. I need the right to define what my path to God. This is what people mean when they say, hey, I don't want to talk about spiritual things. That's private. It's personal. And, I, and we're like, but it's, it's not private because everything we do has, has impact on everyone we know. And what we believe defines how we interact with others. So it's really not that private. And it actually matters if indeed we hold the answer to the dilemma. I mean, isn't this the fact of the gospel? Is that the gospel is not a truth among other truths. Rather, it sets a question mark against all truths. It says, is this in accordance with who Jesus is and what he is declared to be? And so there are lots of reasons why we struggle with a boldness for the gospel. And maybe it is, is because, because Jesus has not become a living, real, actual presence in your life in the way that he wants to be. And maybe it's because you're still maintaining a certain level of autonomy that has never experienced the power that comes from total surrender. And the three things that I just want us to consider in, in this message this morning is this, is that, is that the first thing that we see of Paul, and this is the outflow of, of a gospel reality, is that, is that we see in Paul a, a thankfulness that can only come from a reorientation of desire. Look what it says in, in verses eight through 12. It says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you. In my prayers at all times, and I pray, and now at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Notice Paul, who was the most brilliant mind the church has ever produced. In the history of the church, next to Jesus, Paul is probably the most brilliant thinker. Theologians, philosophers are still trying to unpack the theological depths of his letters. 
He was a man completely surrendered to the, to the lordship of Jesus, empowered by the spirit, but he was also a man of unbelievable natural intelligence, and he yielded that whole personhood of himself to the leading of the spirit, and because of that, he has given us much of what we call the New Testament. God utilized him just as he designed him to be a conduit of the gospel of grace. And keep in mind, Paul, who is this brilliant, Jesus-dependent, radical apostle, evangelist, church planter, discipler, this same Paul is the one who at the end of his life said, this saying is worthy of remembrance and repeating, that Jesus Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. A constant awareness of his absolute brokenness and his impotence apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That all the brilliance that he had in the world meant nothing if it wasn't yielded to King Jesus. But what I love is that what you see is the outcome of a total dependence, because remember how he started the letter? He said, Paul, a bondservant, I am totally dependent upon Christ as, as my all in all. He will define my steps. He will guide me where he wants me to be. I am, I am, giving my full allegiance to him and the only message I proclaim is the message which he has given me. And this is why he can say, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. This is a church that he literally had never been to. And yet there's such a beautiful sincerity in this that Paul was one who spent much time praying for people he never even had met. Believing that prayer changes things and believing that with an expectancy and, and a confidence and with a thankful heart that Christ is present and, and, and available and that his prayers actually matter, that, that God wants us to commune with him. And, and I think that one of the things that we need to recapture in the church is that there is so much, I mean, this, I was thinking about the works of Nietzsche and how Nietzsche said one of his critiques of the church was that the church had no joy, that it was a place that felt more like a funeral than it did a celebration. And if the gospel was true, pe shouldn't people be expressive in that joy? But I think in a culture, as, as I just began with, of victimization where we almost elevate the victim and, and the position of victim rather than finding, helping people move beyond their, their identity is not their most broken moment. But their identity should be in Christ in spite of our brokenness. I mean, believe me, I understand. I, I know what it's like to grow up without a dad. I know what it's like to grow up with, with really crummy stepdads. I know what it's like to have my heart broken and to have my dreams crushed. I could walk around with a lot of bitterness over the, over the trajectory of my life. But if I had lived in that place, do those things define me today? Of course they do. But they aren't my identity. They, God has the ability when we put our identity in Jesus to weave our broken narratives into something beautiful and useful. But there has to be an elevation. Yes, does Jesus meet us in our sin? That is the most beautiful aspect of the gospel that no matter how deep your brokenness goes, God's love goes deeper still. But he's not content to leave us there. And the thing that happens when the gospel actually penetrates the sinful human heart is that, is that the first thing that happens is that we become overwhelmed. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it creates an entirely different lens, what I like to call it as a sacramental cast. It's the ability to see the world now with new eyes. And if we lack one of the great uh, barometer 
of spiritual health is thankfulness. It's what C.S. Lewis said is the secret to joy. And one of the measurements of whether or not a Christian is healthy is the ability to maintain thankfulness even in the midst of great suffering. And the, the only time we're thankful shouldn't be when things are going well for us. Because if you haven't learned by all you, listen, if you're under 30 and life's been pretty, pretty pain-free up to this point, don't worry, your suffering will come. Uh, because life really is impossible. It is, it's impossible. Some people experience the impossibility of it really young. If you're born in India into, into a class, uh, into a shanty town, that's where you're gonna live your whole life. So never let us turn the gospel into, if I put my faith in Jesus, everything's gonna go good. There's gotta be something else about the gospel that can actually create a, grat a thankful heart. And maybe one of the things that the gospel does that's so powerful and so unlike anything else is that the gospel actually has the power to free us from the need to be free from what we're suffering from. Which in, even in that, I can be thankful. I remember going through my season of anxiety and even saying, like, Jesus, it's so hard for me to say it, and I hate this, but I thank you for what you're doing even though I don't understand it right now. I have to thank you, and if I don't thank you, I'm gonna lose my mind. I remember falling on my knees in a field, fasting, and it was toward the end of my eight months, and it was crippling. I mean, it was like, put me in a hospital kind of anxiety. My wife was very scared that I was truly having a mental breakdown, and I was. And I remember collapsing on my face and, I, and the Lord showed me something. I was so obsessed with my anxiety, so obsessed in this kind of mental loop. I was like a rat in a little cage and I couldn't get out of it. And it was so self, it just kept turning me more and more inward upon myself. It's what I would refer to as like my best understanding of hell is that it's an insane asylum. It's where it doesn't matter who's around you because you're so inward turned that you cannot escape the absolute craziness. I felt like I was like this person in the back of my head that couldn't figure out how to get outward. And Darcy even referred to that when I have the, my unhealthy seasons, I tend to, she calls it the shell, where I'm just inside myself and I can't seem to get out of it. And I remember in that moment, I, I fell on, on my knees and I was sobbing and I'm begging Jesus to remove the anxiety. I just felt like something was wrong and I knew that if I stayed in this space, it would not be long before I, I would feel like I could not live any longer with this kind of unsettled, unidentifiable source of pain because I just, I didn't know what was wrong. I couldn't even identify it. And I remember the Lord showed me, it was, it was one of the most supernatural moments I've ever had. And it was like right on the Deschutes River and outside of Warm Springs and, and the river was rushing and I was on this little point and I just was crying out to God and it literally was yelling. And all of a sudden the Lord brought to my mind my conversion, my wife's conversion, the birth of my son, the birth of my daughter, the blessing of giving me music back after I thought it was gone, bringing me from a no education to pastoring, to starting a church, to being blessed. And it was like everything he showed me, it was like, you've forgotten all of that. One of the key reasons you're experiencing what you're experiencing is you've lost your ability to be thankful in, in, in the midst of what is suffering. You're in the shade of my hand for a reason and you've got to trust me and you actually need to thank me for it. And it took everything in me and I just said, thank you, Jesus. And a month later, 
God relieve me from it. And it took a lot of things. It took a doctor, it took some medication, <laughs> it, took, it took a lot of prayer, it took fasting. It's not like it was like, Jesus just healed me of my anxiety and boom, I'm like, yeah. No, it was like, it was, it was a process, but that was a turning point. And it was a turning point that reminded me, and it's something that I've held on to. And I think when things get dark is when I, one of my ways I gauge my own health is am I thankful or am I bitter? Do I believe that Jesus is bigger than my brokenness? Am I thankful for that? And this is what we see. It's a go- the gospel is a reorientation of desire. Paul, look at how Paul lives. Paul was beaten and left for dead multiple times. Every place he went, he was chased out. People spoke... People within the church spoke negatively about him. Peter said Paul is difficult to understand. I mean, he was misunderstood. He was beaten. He was chased out. He was, he was attacked by his own people, people that he led to the Lord, deeply wounded multiple times. And he talks about it very openly and candidly. And yet he always seems to maintain this outward movement, showing us that the gospel is not an inward and upward journey. It is an outward and downward journey. And that is the place where peace is found. It's a self-forgetfulness not the loss of, of who I am as a person, but it's, it's, a, it's an obsession with Jesus that leads to an obsession for the world. And I think that this is something that we desperately need in the church today. The Spirit gives grace through us, possessing nothing, we have nothing of our own to offer. And so more we impart, the more we receive. The more we receive, the more we impart. Look at verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. This teaches us to use whatever gifts the Lord has graciously given us to make others stronger in their faith. One of the best ways to break free from that psychological loop is to do the thing that feels the least natural, which is to move outward toward people. And I know some of you are in a place of anxiety or depression, and that actually is an impossibility, and I'm not trying to proclaim something that's unfair because I know what it's like to have people say that to me and not be able to do it. This is why we need community. This is why we need one another, because there's gonna be some times where you're like, I hear you, Josh, but I'm frozen, and I wanna recognize that that's a real thing. But that's why we need people. That's why it says it's not good that man be alone. And that's why Paul says, listen, my thankfulness is it flows out of a connectivity to both God and others. And I love that Paul, in his brilliance, recognized, and this is what you should always be looking for in spiritual leaders too, is a spiritual leader is not one who feels like they have nothing to gain from the people in front of them. A spiritual leader is, is, are, it should be people that recognize that every person has some insight into what it means to be human, what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be broken, and there should be a dignity and a respect that puts us all on an even playing field. Paul is never above thinking that he could be taught something by someone else. He's like, I literally, I wanna be with you and I actually wanna receive from you. I'm trusting that I'm gonna be blessed. I'm gonna be built up. I'm gonna learn something. It's a posture of humility. It's never thinking more of yourself than you ought to. It's powerful, and it's the outworking of the gospel. Secondly, there's an expectancy. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. There is an expectation 
in Paul's writing and in his, in his activity that gave him an endless amount of energy. And it was simply this. It was the continual belief that God is not distant nor detached, but that he is a present reality. This is why the message could never be separated from the giver of that message. Jesus is the message. His presence in Paul's life is also the thing that Paul continually wanted others to experience. He wanted them and knew they could experience the presence of the living Christ. We're told, and we'll get into this in Romans, is it possible to have assurance as a believer? In a time where we feel most comfortable being, being a, a bit agnostic about anything solid, where we're like, where we, if we're not experiencing the very presence of Christ, the way that we make ourselves feel better about it is saying that that should be normative. When I believe that one of the things we can learn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters is that, and the thing that I actually think is the healthiest uh, aspect of it is that they really believe that when they gather, they really believe when they go out that God is with them and going to meet them and that it is through his presence and his power that they're able to fulfill what God has called them to fulfill. Where I think it gets dangerous is that when the desire to see the spectacular overrides the king himself, when the experience becomes the, the central thing rather than the foundation, the immovable foundation of Jesus, his gospel, and whether you feel him or not, this is the reality. That's the, that's the part where I think it can get out of whack. But I do believe that we need to have a far greater expectancy. That when you're coming here, you're not coming to learn about Jesus. You're coming to meet with him. Notice Paul says, I'm obligated. There is this drive in him. He has this debt. And I, I believe that he will get into this in great detail later. Is that there is only one debt that is never paid in full. And that debt is love. He says, the love of Christ compels me. And the thing that motivated Paul toward a world that was broken and lost was this belief that every person is one that Jesus is seeking and pursuing. Christ Jesus came to die for sinners of whom I am chief. Paul believed that the gospel that transformed his life was a gospel that could transform everybody's life. So tenaciously that he was willing to lose relationships he was willing to put his life on the line. He was willing to die for it. And this is the thing that I think is so problematic where we are today, is that not only do we not have a healthy theology of suffering, you have people that are willing in certain places. Michael was telling me about these kids that share the gospel. Uh, I think he said it was in Saudi Arabia. There are these two boys that he met that were sharing the gospel. They got radically saved and they were immediately breaking the law and could be put to death for, for preaching the gospel. And they would, they would go out, their, their, their sister, I think, experienced a supernatural healing, and they would utilize the healing, they would, they would go out on the street and proclaim that God had healed their sister and people would stop to listen, and then they would immediately, and I love this because it gives us a much different perspective than American views on signs and wonders and healing, because often the healing is for us not for proclamation or pointing people to Jesus. They were only interested in the healing of their sister in enough that they could actually proclaim Jesus, which was actually putting their lives at risk. And so the moment they would start talking about the gospel, people would start throwing rocks at them. And they were like, so we're just trying to get the gospel out to as many people as possible before we get killed. I'm like, our thought is, I'm not sharing the gospel with anyone because I don't want people to think I'm dumb. 
listen, you're here, you're dumb. According to the world uh, perspective, you're, you know, you're here, you're dumb. You're like, we downplay, we downplay the, the, the power of the gospel. I like one of the most powerful things I've experienced in, in Portland was reading that interaction between Christopher Hitchens, and I can't remember her name. She was a really well-known pastor of the Unitarian Church downtown. And there was this great exchange. And she says to Christopher Hitchens, she says, she goes, listen, we, I believe, I love you. I love your writing. I like Christopher Hitchens too. He's quite charming in his, in his kind of toxic language about Christianity. Uh, he's more charming than most Christians. Uh, like, but here, that's not true. Uh, but I, I think that, that here's, here's the thing. He, she says, I believe all the same things you believe. And what does Christopher Hitchens do? He's like, just so, in case you're wondering, like a church that basically just surrenders its orthodoxy to be appealing is surrendering the gospel. And it took an atheist being interviewed by this woman. And what was fascinating, it was so clear from the interview that she didn't even get what was happening. She, she says, I know I believe what you believe. And he goes, oh really? So you believe what I, you, you, you say you're a Christian. So you, uh, so listen, so you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. She's like, no. She's like, you don't believe that he died for the sins of the world? She's like, no. You don't believe that he rose from the dead on the third day? She, she said, no. He's like, you don't believe that he, sends his Holy Spirit to those who place their faith in him and are regenerated or born again? She said, absolutely not. And he goes, then you're not a Christian. Here she is claiming the title but trying to redefine it. It takes an atheist to preach the gospel back to her. (laughs) And if an atheist is comfortable being bold about what Christians actually believe or should believe, that should tell us something that's fundamentally wrong with our weak attempts at being somehow palatable for modern sensibilities. It's not okay. Jesus himself said, if anyone is ashamed of me or denies me, I will deny them before the Father. We need to actually restore a healthy understanding of fear and trembling that we will give an account to our King. And yes, we can claim grace. And yes, there is nothing we can do to add to or take away from what Jesus Christ has done for us. But the regenerated heart, if you lack the courage to communicate the goodness of Jesus, then there's something fundamentally wrong with our understanding of the gospel. And I'm not saying you need to have a better theological grasp. I'm not saying that you need to be able to explain atonement. All I'm saying is that if you're embarrassed by the fact that you belong to Jesus. Or you're like, well, I don't, it's not that I'm embarrassed by Jesus, I'm just embarrassed by being associated with American Christianity. Bogus, I, I call your bluff. Really, you're gonna, you're, gonna blame, you're gonna blame Trump for not wanting to call yourself a Christian? Like, that's not, a, that's not acceptable. How often have there been horrible leaders in world history that have been connected to the church It didn't change the fact that we're called to maintain a boldness and recognize that we shouldn't be surprised when people sin because we're sinners? And the identity, we don't need to throw out who we are in Christ because it's been sabotaged by a particular political bent. That's not, that's not the answer. And what happens, and here's the thing, is what Michael told me, he said that he believes America's 10 years behind where Europe has landed in its completely post-Christian age. Portland's already there, but it's gonna come across the board. And it's gonna be a complete rejection of traditional orthodoxy. And there will be lots of people that will come to fill in that gap offering new gospels that will, that will itch itchy ears. Because here's the thing, people 
are longing to find their way home. And what we are calling people to is to return to what they were created for, which is relationship, a loving, intimate relationship with Jesus, that God loves them. If you, are, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, he loves you, he's crazy about you. The reason you're here, I believe, is because the Spirit drew you. And the call that we call to respond to people is the power of the gospel is not a man's ability to articulate or a woman's ability to articulate intelligently. The power of the gospel is the Holy Spirit working through willing conduits who say, I am here. These two kids in Saudi Arabia said, I will die for the gospel. And we're like, I can't even imagine offending my coworker because I don't want to be disliked. We're not, we're not, there, we're not counting the cost, but I'm telling you, it could be taken. Our religious freedoms could be taken at any point. We should not be so confident that we're going to have the freedom to do what we do right now. You, we don't know how long it's going to be before actually holding an orthodox view would be considered hate, hate speech. It already is in many, and across, across academic circles and in colleges and universities, it already is. The, the, the advocates of tolerance are intolerant of anyone that doesn't hold their view of tolerance. We need to understand that. And this is why the gospel of grace, the world does not understand it, but it, it's dying for it. It's longing for it every moment of every day. And so why are we so afraid? They say that statistically through massive, massive looks at, at, the, at the spiritual landscape of America, there's been tons of surveys done. And across the board right now, non-believing Americans are more open to spiritual conversations than ever before but Christians are more unwilling to invite people into what it is they believe more than ever before. So you have a bunch of people longing to come home and we can tell them how to get there and we, and we won't do it. Why? Maybe we need to come back to this recognition that if the gospel is good enough to save you, it's good enough to save your friend, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your coworker. We can't rely upon the fact that if we stay cloistered enough and have enough babies that we can really change the tide. That's what a Catholic priest told us at the Abbey this week. And I said, well, we're doing pretty good there. I mean, we are actually gonna change the tide. We, got, we went from you know, zero to 350 kids. So we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna spiritually, but that can't be the, the main strategy. That may be the Catholic Church's strategy, but it can't be ours. We should produce children, we should be fruitful. We are gonna have lots of Christian kids in Portland Public Schools, that's awesome. But we have to be willing. There are multiple ways that we engage in, in the life. I, I heard um, Becky um, Pippert say something on Friday that I thought was really helpful. She said there should be, for a church to be effectively evangelistic, to actually fulfill the Great Commission, we need it in three platforms. We need relational evangelism, we need small group evangelism, and we need, we need proclamation. It's so what we have on Sunday, the, the commitment to proclaim the gospel every day. On, on small group, the, it, being willing to invite your friends into a community group with you, ask them to come visit, come, have, invite them to a women's event or to the women's retreat or to a guy's event. There's lots of ways that you can in a small scale, but on a relational evangelism, how are we doing? And this is the thing, how do you engage with someone about the gospel? Where do you start? You know, one of the things for me is, that, is, is I, I spend a lot of time reading a lot of literature, watching a lot of film, a lot of television, and it honestly is not just because it's fun. I do love it, but I do it for a reason. Darcy teases me. She's like, do you, I don't know if you read for fun. 
And I'm like, yeah, that's a complicated question. I think it's fun to learn, but I'm always looking for how can I make it effective. And this is the thing as an evangelist, as someone who has an evangelistic impulse at least, is that I think that the key with a relational evangelism, for example, I'm flying to London next, next Monday. Some poor soul's gonna get stuck by me for 10 hours. <laughs> now, in that 10 hours, they're gonna inevitably start talking to me. So do I, what's the first thing that I tell someone when I meet them? Do I say, my name's Josh, I'm a preacher, never. I don't do that. I'll be like, I'm I'll look, I'll look, I have all these little things I do. I'll look at what they're reading. Hattie was teasing me when she went to New York with me because she's like, you would even find ways to connect with someone on some level, like if there's a Russian cabbie, I would say, I've been to Russia five times. Immediately, really, where? You know, like, want to talk with me about it. I'd share with them where. And then they'd be like, why were you there? In, straight in. It's like, <laughs> you know, like, that we're, we're on, we're, we're going somewhere now. Uh, like, on a flight, oh my gosh, I see you're reading Nosgaard's first book, My Struggle. I love that, which, like, what do you think of him? And in long conversation, you try to find common ground to connect. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well. And, and once you have that common ground, it's only a matter of time before they say, what do you do? Or, or you know, or what, what's, what's important to you? If you're not, if you're not professionally, a, you know, a paid minister, you still be like, you know, yeah, I'm like super involved in my church. I'm, oh, really, you go to church? And here's the thing, people, you don't have, I don't keep going if people are like hostile. I'm like, if people are like, whoa, like I have had people literally just be like, awesome conversation, awesome conversation. Then I'm like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a preacher. And they're like, what? And I do have an unfair advantage of a gold tooth and lots of tattoos. They're not looking like anyone's idea of what a, especially in England, man, they're like, you're a vicar? And I'm like, I think that's what I would be. I don't know. I actually don't think I could be a vicar because I don't have an education, so it's probably not valid. But, um, but yes, that, he's like, I thought you were a barber or a tattoo artist. They'll be like, a barber or tattoo artist. I'm like, why don't they ever think that I was maybe a retired rock star? I mean, jeez, <laughs> I wear my son's clothes and it still does nothing. I, nobody comes to that, the conclusion. I try so hard. Um, but, but you look for the common ground and that common ground often leads to Spiritual conversations, and the spiritual conversations are not difficult. Do I lead everybody I sit by to the Lord in that moment? No, but I have plant seeds everywhere I go. Invite people to church. Just invite them to church. Begin by just realizing that God wants you to live outwardly. And this is, this is why. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 through 17, we're gonna spend more time on this next week, but I just wanted to lay out just kind of these three kind of conduits of, of gospel health, thankfulness, expectancy, this belief that when I talk with someone that God is going to show up and he is moving in that person's heart and that their ability to come to him doesn't even happen unless he draws them. And so it's not my problem. It's just my call. It's, and I pray, God, give me the love to care for this person, to engage with this person, to listen to this person. I need to get better about really listening to them because I do have the gift of monologue and that's not necessarily a gift. Um, but I think that this is where it lands. It's, it's a confidence. And this is why you're not gonna share anything if, if, if the gospel hasn't gotten a hold of your own heart. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, for in it the gospel of, the, uh, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, or it probably better, from God is revealed. 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Notice, there is an imputed, it's what we call theologically imputed. It's a righteousness that is not, is not created by our ability. It's a, it's a righteousness that comes to us through our casting ourselves, our total dependence upon Jesus. And we're going to get into the righteousness that comes from God and the righteousness that it produces in our lives and, and how faith and righteousness interact next week. But I, but I want us to see this, that, that what Paul is saying is that his ability to communicate the gospel with boldness is totally dependent upon a supernatural transformation in our hearts and minds. I did not like to talk publicly. I love to sing publicly. I was terrified of speaking before the gospel captured my heart. Jesus became so real to me that I had to tell people about him. Do you want to know how spiritual formation happens? It's not through you exercising spiritual disciplines for your own good. The thing that will drive you to real spiritual disciplines is actually believing that the gospel changes lives. And the thing that will make Jesus more real to you is when you actually begin to experience the costliness of the gospel. Nothing changed my life like seeing someone come to faith, right? After I came to faith, I immediately began to share Jesus with other people. And yes, I was malformed, but you are always malformed. But also, nothing was more powerful than seeing people offended by my faith and being rejected for the name of Jesus. There is beauty in suffering for the gospel. And how do you know that it's a healthy suffering? Is because it actually creates a joy that you are suffering for the right things. Because when we actually refuse to be vehicles by which the gospel is proclaimed, we suffer with guilt and shame. And the gospel is about freeing us from guilt and shame. And it frees us from the tyranny of the opinions of others. And gives us this new kind of ability and this new confidence. A confidence not in my own strength, but in a righteousness that has come to me from Jesus. That no matter how broken, how sinful I am, that when I stand and communicate that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe, I have the universe at my back saying yes and amen, and so do you. He has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. Not many wise, we are told. Not many prestigious. Not many famous. No, it is the humble, simple acceptance by the everyday man and woman, boy and girl, that says yes to Jesus. And that yes leads to a boldness that says, I will be poured out. I believe the reason God has me as the pastor of this church is to remind all of you that it's not our education, it's not our intellectual capacity, it's not a perfect background, but in all these broken, flawed things, everything that would be a mark against me by the world, Jesus says, in spite of that, I choose you, that through you, I can reach more. I want you to know that that's the same thing he says to each of you. I choose you because I love you. And that through you, I can share that love with more. He has chosen all of us to be a people that are thankful, expectant, and confident because it's not us, it's him. It's not us, it's him. He loves you. He gave his life for you. Now share that life with others and you will come alive. I promise. Amen? Let's pray.